And um, uh, probably next week we'll get to this, and then we'll, we'll probably have to spend a couple of weeks on this. Because whereas you might uh, be able to, it, it might be okay for you to be confused about some of these words, you cannot be confused about this one. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot. Uh, that's, a, that's a word that you must know. Like, remember, you know, um, uh, in World War II, um, I read a book while I was away about uh, the, the Pacific Theater, but uh, that, that gun that they, um, that they primarily used, the M16 or the M1 or whatever it was, um, you know, in, in basic training, uh, you, you had to be able to take that thing apart and put it back together again in the dark. Because if your gun jammed and somebody was, and you're in a foxhole, you, you needed to be able to take your gun apart, put it back together, and make it fire without it being you know, just second nature to you. My, my point is, this has got to be like the M1. We've got to be able to take that thing apart, put it back together again in the dark. There can be, we cannot afford to not understand that one. No Christian can afford not to understand that one. Now, these others, you know, um, there's a whole lot of discussion, but not this one. But we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But tonight, I wanted you to see, um, right after the word predestined in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, here's the language. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, guys, uh, um, as I was thinking about this this week while I'm sitting around a pool, um, I thought, well, I'm gonna, I need to come back and start here. But those are some pretty rich words in verse 29, and I didn't, I didn't think that we should skip them and, and just race to these five words thing. So what I want to do, we, we've covered those two words, and then we're going to come back and get the, the other three. But this is just too, um, there's too much being said here to gloss over it and just race be, uh, beyond it. So let me show you what we're going to fix our attention on this, this evening. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, I've, I've, I've explained those two words to everyone's absolute satisfaction, and we all agree perfectly about what those two words mean, I'm sure. But um, it's these next words that we're going to look at tonight. To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, guys, that's, that's under our investigation for tonight. That, those two clauses that uh, are basically comprise the uh, half, the last half of verse 29. Guys, uh, one, of my, uh, one of the guys that I used to listen to quite a bit, I haven't in years, but Steve Brown. Um, Steve Brown used to say that the Bible doesn't say a whole lot of, doesn't cover a whole lot of different topics. But the topics that it does cover, it covers a lot. It covers them frequently. And I, I think there's truth in that. There's not a whole lot of, uh, there's not a, a multiplicity of themes that you have to get, master. But there are several themes that are repeated over and over and over and over and over again. My point being, if you look at verse 29, there are two things that I think are in there. But they're not new things. They're not things that you haven't heard about. They're not things that haven't been discussed in your hearing. But they're repeated again, uh, as Steve Brown was saying. You know, it's the same things, but they show up in various places. Because the Bible's got a few things that it would have us know very, very well. Let me show you the first one that is, that's contained in here. This theme that you have, I, I, I say again, you've, you've heard the theme before, but here it is cropping up again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here's theme number one. Okay, God, what are you up to? Well, he is 
foreknowing and predestining, whatever those two things mean, so that, or two, that is a group of people who would be conformed to the image of his Son. What God is up to redemptively is to produce a group of people who look a whole lot like Jesus. Now, that word conformity surely doesn't confuse you, does it? It simply says that God did this, and he did that, and because he has in mind this, um, uh, this, this goal of a whole lot of people who look just like his son. Now, guys, that's what God is up to, creating this nation, this kingdom of people, all who resemble his son in various ways. Now, whatever way you may choose to understand these words that are so controversial in evangelicalism, being called and being foreknown and being predestined, uh, all of the, uh, the, the hullabaloo that surrounds them, whatever way you understand them, whatever way you choose to adopt as your understanding of those words, I told you mine, at least for the first two, whatever way you choose to understand them, the impact of your understanding is supposed to be this, that it creates an environment and an atmosphere where you feel a deeper sense of urgency to be like Jesus Christ. However you understand these words and however you much you want to fight about them, you, listen, guys, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I, I, you know, I don't want to quibble with you. But I can tell you this. Whatever way you understand them, it's got to produce this. A greater sense of urgency in your own soul and life that I be like Jesus. And if whatever way you understand them doesn't do that, then you don't understand them. Um, so you can set the arguing aside. Let me ask you this. Has your theological understanding of foreknowledge and predestination given you a greater appetite for conformity? Has it done that? Because that's what it's supposed to do. That's right there, folks. <laughs> what it's supposed to do. I mean, you know, quibble, 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 quibble. Forget all that. Set it aside. Let me ask you. You know, we don't, we don't ever insist that anybody tote some theological um, line here. You don't have to quack like a duck, uh, you know, like all the other ducks. Nobody, nobody insists that everybody agree on theological subjects. Okay, choose your, choose your poison. How do you understand these words? I don't know. And I'll probably never ask. I'll answer if you ask, but, um, but I can tell you this, guys. Whatever way you got of reconciling these words in your theological system, the end result has got to be that you sense a greater urgency to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. True truth, and that's, a, that's an old Schaeferian word. Uh, Schaefer used to talk about true truth. And, I, and, and as I was preparing this, I didn't know what else to use. And I, I mean, let, let me put a, a right understanding of these words never produces a spiritual passivity. Then produce that. So if that's what you got, you got the wrong understanding of the words. 
<laughs> because these words, what God is up to is creating this, this legion of people who all look like Jesus. And, you know, um, Steve Brown used to say um, when he was praying, I, I love this. He, um, he talked about when, when God's people were together, um, could they hear the sweet sound of sandaled feet? Well, can we? Is there any sweet sound of the sandal feet among us? Because if there isn't, folks, we don't understand the words. And we can quibble all we want to. You know, guys, listen to the Apostle Paul. I, I won't ask you to turn to these because we probably don't have time because we've got to get to that football game because that's really, really, really important. Um, um, so, but I won't ask you to turn because we're going to get out early here tonight. We're going to get out real early. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26, where he says, um, uh, where, where Paul talks about that I, I buffet my body and make it my slave. My translation, I, I, it's, I was, uses the word discipline for that buffet word. You know, you know how to buffet your body, don't you? <laughs> well, I don't know how to do that very well when it comes to certain things, uh, edibles. Um, but he says, in terms of my soul, I buffet it. I discipline it. Now, that's the language that he's using to describe himself. Uh, another one he talks about in Ephesians 6, he says, um, we do not wrestle. Okay, I'll tell you what, let's do this. We're, we'll use the word buffet, that's a good King James word, and then wrestle. And then, um, then in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, where is that? 2 Timothy 4.12, no, 4.7, I think, where he says, um, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I await, yada, yada, yada. So we'll put that one in there. Now, you know, when you add all those up, what you get is passivity, right? When Paul looked at his own, when, when, he, when he was trying to find words that would adequately describe the life that he was living in, in, in service to Christ, here's the words that he would use. I buffet my body. I wrestle. I fight. I run. Now, folks, you do understand, don't you, that Paul's the one that wrote that Romans 8, 28, Romans 8, 29, 30. He's the one that wrote it. That's the same one who says, hey, you know what, you want, you want some words to adequately describe my Christian walk? It's these. Whatever way you understand those words, guys, it cannot produce passivity. What it, what it must produce is a greater sense of urgency to do things that would make me more like Jesus Christ. You know, changing my tongue a little bit, you know, how I talk and some of the words I use. Or, or maybe, um, you know, it might, might change my schedule and how I... Uh, allot my time, or it might change my view of myself, or, you know, stuff like that. Stuff that's making me more like the Savior. Because that's, what's God, that's what God is up to, folks. He said, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. I didn't make that up. You know, guys, I'm going to say something... Um, and I, I've said this before, but I, I always hate to say it because it—I I never want to—I never want to 
you know, for instance, um, I've had, I remember one particular girl, she was in Mississippi, and she used to say to me, she, 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 and she said this more than once, she said, isn't God neat? And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a good word, and, and, and I'm sure that you could use it with great application and benefit. It's just not a word I thought would adequately describe the character of the living God. You know, you're neat. You're neat, God. You're cool. You know, I just didn't. I, 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 so my point is, I want to be very careful about the words that I choose when I'm talking about who this God is. Um, but here's, my, here's, here's what I wanted to say. There is a sense, my brother and sister in Christ, there is a sense in which God is, here's the word, obligated. I hate to bind his hands. He is obligated to bless something that looks like his son. Whenever he finds it. He, is, he so delights in his own son that he invariably, and I, I chose this word too, and I thought about this word because this word is so uh, misused in evangelicalism. God so delights in the image of his own son that he invariably blesses. I don't know what, what other word to... He, he honors. He blesses where his likeness exists. Where his son is, is being aped. He blesses that. Because that's his, that's his intent. Is he to have a whole lot of people who are little Jesuses running around the planet. Um, back in our bookstore... And, you know, I, re- I really failed y'all this Christmas season because I, I meant to bring books to the, the pulpit and say, you know, if you're looking for a gift, buy a book. <laughs> you know, the, the, Christian, the, the Christian that's reading is the Christian that's growing, folks. Uh, get you a book. Man, there's some, there's some great ones back there. But anyway, we have several systematic theologies in our, in our bookstore. We also have jewelry, which embarrasses me. Um, <laughs> I cannot tell my Presbyterian friends that we sell jewelry in our bookstore. <laughs> I've told Gail that, but she, it doesn't stop her. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, we have several systematic theologies back there, and uh, we have Hodges, uh, we have Burkhoffs, um, Charles Hodge, great systematician, so is Louis Burkhoff. But the one that's kind of the new kid on the block is, um, is a, I, I, I want to say he was a professor at Trinity Seminary. I don't, even, I don't even know his first name, but his last name is Grudem. And Grudem, um, you know, all systematic theologies are pretty much alike. I mean, you've got chapters. You've got the chapter on God and then the Trinity and then Christology and Soteriology and Pneumatology and Ecclesiology and, and um, uh, Eschatology. You've got all those, those chapters. And they're, they're pretty much the same in, in all systematics. But Grudem's systematics is different. And I didn't find this. It was uh, Bruce Meyer that pointed this out to me. Bruce Meyer um, recommended Grudem's systematics. Because at the close of every chapter in Grudem's Systematics, you know what you will find? A hymn. H-Y-M-N. Because here's what he says. All theology must conclude in doxology. You know what doxology is? Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning. That's called the doxology. It's called the doxology because it's got that glory word in there so much. It comes from a Greek word, doxe, which means glory. Um, and so all theology must end us up. Well, that's not very well said, is it? Must end us up in do- 
doxology. Anything you know, anything that you possess as your theological system that doesn't take you to some kind of conformity to the Savior, it's useless information. Because that's what the Father is up to, creating a bunch of people that look like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, quack like Jesus, you know, love what Jesus loves, hate what Jesus hates. And um, that, that's the first theme. We're going to get out of here early. We're going to get out of here, I promise. We're gonna. The other theme is this. Um, um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here we go. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that's the second theme that's in there. Right after that comma. Now, you know in the Greek language they don't have punctuation. They don't have commas. That's, in there, that's inserted in there for your, your benefit. But, guys, uh, let me give you a little Greek lesson real quick. Uh, this is a simple one. Uh, in the Greek language, there is what's known as a hina clause. It's um, with a rough breathe. That, that little thing right there is called a rough breathe. And it's, um, it's always you, you add an H. That's an I, that's an N, and that's an A in Greek. And so the, the, this just adds an H to it, an H sound. So it's called a hina, a hina clause. And a hina clause, guys, when you're, trans, I mean, when you're trying to do something uh, translating from the Greek language, and you find that, then you know what you've got. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a dead giveaway. It's a hina clause. And a hina clause is a purpose clause. It's usually translated something like this. Uh, so that... Or in this translation I've got, it's in order that. Now, guys, I just gave you point one a minute ago, and I said that what God is up to is creating this whole group of people that's just like Jesus, okay? That is a secondary goal. You know, you got, you got primary, secondary, and tertiary. The secondary, that's a, the secondary goal is to create a whole bunch of people who are like Jesus. Here's the primary goal on the part of the Father, in order that. Hey, God, why are you doing that? Hey, God, why did you foreknow and then predestine these people and call those folks and, and you know, <clears throat> and then also that you can make a bunch of people look like Jesus? Why do you do that? In order that he, now that he right there, guys, is pretty clearly a reference to the second person of the Trinity. In order that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know what the Father wants? He wants Jesus to be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, guys, I'm going to introduce you to a word, and I want you to, I want you to remember this word, because we're about to go back to Genesis in the Sunday morning pulpit, uh, you know, that we left back in Mother's Day. <laughs> That's been a long time. Um, but we're going to come pretty soon to the life of Jacob. As soon as I can get there, we're going to come to the life of Jacob. And the first thing that I want you to know is something about primogenitor. Everybody know what primogenitor is? <laughs> it's the law of the firstborn. In, in, um, in ancient Mideast cultures, folks, here's what you did. You had as many children as you could have because you needed a lot of kids. You needed a lot of kids because... Uh, particularly sons, because they could work the fields, they could fight in the army, and they could take care of you when you were 
aged. Now, you needed girls so that they could have the boys. <laughs> Sorry, ladies, but, uh, um, but you, I mean, the, the successful family was a family that had lots of kids. Lots and lots and lots of kids. And so, daddy and mama would have lots and lots and lots of kids, as many as they could have. And of course, you know, I, forget, I don't know, 40% of them died by the age of one or something like that. But, um, so yeah, as many as you could have. You just cranked them out. Because you needed them for a big army, and you needed them for work the fields, and you needed them to take care of you, you know? So, uh, the more you had left over when you were dying was a good thing. But daddy had this estate. And the estate was going to be given away. But it was not given away like, like we give it away. You know, I got three daughters and, and you know, my, from the vast holdings of my estate. <laughs> when I croak, you know, Gracie's going to get a third. and Megan's going to get a third. And Emily's going to get a third. <laughs> they both should be able to go out to supper that night. Um, or uh, Anyway, um, that's how we do it. We can't, you know, we're make it fair to all kids, you know. They didn't do it like that here, guys. Because to divide up your, your estate was to lessen your impact and your standing in the culture. So everything went to the firstborn. Everything. Now, his brothers could, um, you know, could uh, get in there and, and uh, you know, benefit because big brothers got a whole lot of stuff. But the firstborn got it all. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the law of primogenitor. <clears throat> and it is amazing what God does to overturn, in the, life, in the life and history of Jacob, the laws of primogenitor. And his grand design is to teach the glories of grace, and we'll get to that later on. But guys, that's primogenitor. Now, now go back with me to the, to the text. Uh, to, in order that he might be the firstborn. <laughs> so that he might have all the inheritance. He's going to be the firstborn among lots and lots of brothers. That's what the Father is up to in his redemptive purposes, ladies and gentlemen. Is to create a bunch of people who look like the firstborn. Entrusting all of the beauties and, and, and treasures of heavenly inheritance into the hands of the firstborn. And then, I stand in that family with the firstborn. And you know what he calls me? He calls me a brother. <laughs> Among many brothers. The firstborn among many brethren. You know, guys, um, um, sometimes it's kind of important as to what Jesus called you. I mean, I'm reading this, and I don't know whether you've... Have you had a brother to a dragonfly? Has anybody read this before? This is a classic, guys. It's about life in the South. Um, it 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 is well, well worth your time. It's a memoir. It's... And... And... This, the, the guy that writes it is a, was a pastor. And there's, there's so much in here about grace. But anyway, you're going to be hearing from the book. I'll be using it out there. But, but anyway, um, I'll read you a paragraph. By role, designation, category, and assignment, Joe was the worker. Joe was the older brother. I was the sickly one. And therefore, something of a drone. Sister was just that. Sister. Daughter with three brothers and thus special. 
Paul was the baby. We live that way, and if those categories and designations and roles seemed unfair to any of us, we never discussed it. That's who each one was. One did not ponder identity. Everyone knew and understood without being told, without asking questions, this is who I am. That is who you are. The question, who am I, need not and did not come up. That's the way we lived. You know, just to give you a little bit about the book, it's, um, it's depression years, four kids, three brothers and a sister. And, you know, sister was sister, thus she was special, and then Paul was the baby, and, and uh, the, the author was the sickly one, and then there was Joe the older one. But he said, in our family, nobody talked about identity. That's just the way it was. Sister was special, Joe was the worker, Paul was the baby, and I was the sickly one. Nobody spent any time figuring out who am I. That's just who I am. You know, now, now sociologically, we could spend a lot of time on that, just trying to figure out why is it so important to us, to us 75 years later. I mean, when you, ain't got, when, when you don't have anything, when you're poor as church mice, nobody worries about, you know, what's my, who, who am I? They didn't worry about it. We sure as the devil do, don't we? Identity. My identity. You know, um, about this time last year, we're going to get out of here early. I'm telling you, we're going to get out of here early. Um, about this time last year, I, um, I, well, it was a little bit early. It was the, the end of last week of December. I was in Fort Myers, Florida, recruiting Jeff Sample, and by God's kindness, God led him here to us. Anyway, but we stayed in a spot that we just, we just loved. We just love this little spot. It's back in this little shopping area, and there's no traffic back there. We sat around the pool, and just, you know, just great. We didn't, you know, we don't have a car. We don't need a car. You know, um, but in Fort Myers, Florida, (laughs) this time of year, well, actually in every time of year, I guess, (laughs) the average age in Fort Myers, Florida is somewhere 75 and above. Um, I mean, it is, it is, it is really it's the only airport I've ever been in. I, I mean, it's a big airport. The only airport I've ever been in that the PA announcer came on the PA announcing system and said, uh, would you please return the uh, wheelchairs? We're out of wheelchairs here. <laughs> I've never heard that announcement ever. But in that airport, it's germane. But uh, anyway, so we, Susan and I would go out to supper at these places and, you know, places that Jeff showed us. And they're really nice places. And we're sitting, But, I mean, we're just surrounded. By um, by octogenarians. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know, you know what they talk about all the time? Well, my investment's here and interest rate there and real estate over here. and That's all they can talk about is their real estate investments and how their, you know, the stocks are doing and what did you buy last week and the Wall Street Journal. And, and you know, and I'm just, I don't even trying to listen but that's all they talk about. They go out with their friends and they talk about the Wall Street Journal for heaven's sakes. I wonder who those people think they are. I guess they think they're some kind of cash register. And the goal in life is to get a whole lot of money so I can give it to my kids and ruin them. You know who you are? You're a brother of the firstborn. 
Is that enough for you? It sure as the devil ought to be. Jesus, God has created a group of people with the intent that they look like Jesus so that there'll be this whole group of people celebrating the firstborn in his beauty. And I get to call him my brother. By the way, you know what that makes you too? You know what that makes me and you? It makes me and you brothers too. We got the same firstborn brother. That's who we are. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you'll get glory from your people. And I pray that you will find such pleasure in people who are determined, who haven't perfected it, who are who are slipshod in their the inconsistent in their attempts, but oh, they have a desire. They have a desire to be like the Savior. And little by little, we're making it. By your kindness, by your strength, by your mercy, by your grace. Little by little, we're being turned more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Our big brother, who is born for adversity. And because of his sufferings and adversity, we have been made alive and new. Give us a taste of the beauty of being like Him. We ask it in Jesus' name.